Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Sure. I don't remember what I told you, Liam, so... Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, July 8th, 2022, we're talking about one of the issues that most often pops up in my inbox and Liam's inbox, and even as we're going about our day. Ah, so we must be talking about why we're the most diligent and best housing reporters on the planet. Uh, not not quite, although we love the fans, so keep those coming too. We're actually talking about drought. Oh, right. Yes, the drought. Yes. That one. Mm, the other topic we get emailed about a lot. Specifically this question, how is it advisable or even possible for the state to add millions of more homes and even more millions of people when it seems like we're running out of water? So, yeah, this is an issue that seems to defy common sense, right? Like on the one hand, we have political leaders like Governor Gavin Newsom and housing experts who say we need to add a ton more homes to accommodate the demand for those who want to live in California while also making housing more affordable. But at the same time, people living here, especially now in Southern California, are being asked to stop watering their grass, limit washing their clothes and dishes, and sometimes even letting it mellow when it's yellow Mm. because of a punishing drought limiting the state's water supplies. So on this episode, we're going to get to the bottom of this conundrum. To help us, as always, we have the perfect guest. Who is it, Liam? We'll be talking with Ellen Hannick, who is a vice president and director of the PPIC Water Policy Center and senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, which is a nonpartisan think tank here. Ellen's also the author of a book, Managing California's Water, so truly the perfect guest. Oh, yes. But first, we are back with another version of the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastry. What is it, Liam? It is the avocado of the fortnight. That's right. Our look at the wackiest, most absurd story in California housing from recent weeks. Something pretty wacky happened recently that I think is worth mentioning here, which is that Liam, you and I met for the first time in person after more than a year of co-hosting this podcast. We did, indeed. (laughs) I think we had a lovely time. I agree. (laughs) So I've been planning our next reunion and decided to go all out. All right, great. So to start us off, what's your opinion of beer? Love it. Okay. How about theme parks? Fantastic. Okay. What about Napa? Uh, it's a great place to visit. Okay, cool. The trifecta. So what if I told you that a brewery may be planning a beer-themed amusement park in Napa, complete with a roller coaster made of reclaimed beer barrels and a wave pool filled with 130,000 gallons of hazy IPA? <laughs> So, Manuela, we're on Zoom, and you're the only one who can see me, so you can try to describe to everyone else that my head has actually exploded with joy at this concept. It makes me even sadder to inform you that this meetup 2.0 actually isn't going to happen, Liam. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. So, this idea is almost certainly a prank from Colorado-based New Belgian Brewery. Their Napa theme park, dubbed Voodoo Ranger IPA Action Park, mouthful, uh, including the Lazy Hazy River, titled Extreme Brew Flume, spelled with a capital X and capital T, 
is more a marketing stunt than anything else. You could call me extremely <laughs> disappointed, disappointed, Manuela. So if this whole thing is fake, the, what's the avocado here? Well, Napa residents aren't taking the threat of a beer-themed theme park lying down. Instead, they have organized into a group called Not in Napa that has a Facebook page and a website. Although, let me tell you, it has six likes and 16 followers at this time. And a group of about 10 people held a protest march at Napa Farmer's Market, where (laughs) demonstrators holding Stop the Beer Park signs chanted, Voo don't, voo do. (laughs) (laughs) All these details, thanks to Esther Mobley's recent story in the San Francisco Chronicle. Yes, thank you, Esther. So what are some of the reasons, aside from clearly being against fun, that these protesters don't want the probably fake theme park? So what's funny is that people seem to acknowledge that it might be fake. That's because New Belgium hasn't filed any applications to develop and doesn't even have a liquor license in the county. Nevertheless, a letter to the editor in the local paper there called the proposal, quote, assault upon the minds of folks who are just trying to read the newspaper. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, go on. Not in Napa, the protest group objects to Voodoo Ranger per the Chronicle story on the grounds that it'll worsen traffic, damage the environment, present safety concerns, and turn Napa into a spring break destination. Ah, yes. Okay. There's the not in Napa stuff that we've been expecting. Don't want to be the next Miami. Let's be real though, Liam. What makes this like avocado-y for me is that I'm skeptical even of this opposition. So I watched a video posted by the company on Twitter captioned the buzzkills of wine country, wine with an H. Um, (laughs) Want to stop our IPA action park with footage of people saying things like, This is literally like in my backyard. I then found a Reddit thread about the park and someone with the username emergency hearing 85, a resident who allegedly attended the focus group commented, that was so weird. I feel like they wanted content of people taking the zany proposal in quotes seriously. Sadly, I didn't grab any beer because I felt awkward regretting it now. What do you think? First of all, I am impressed with your sleuthing here. And to further thicken the plot here, I posted that video on Twitter and got a response from the official Voodoo Ranger Twitter account who responded, quote, wine, again with an H, not. Very official sounding Twitter account. (laughs) Yes. So as we said, again, at the top of the show, we are indeed the diligent and best housing reporters. So in response to their response, I fired off a question to Voodoo Ranger I asked, quote, what do you say to those who believe this entire thing is fake, including the theme park protesters who are acting as a false flag operation? A.K.A. me. (laughs) So what happened? Ah, so not only did I get no response, Voodoo Ranger deleted their earlier tweet response to me. Oh, my God. That is a false flag. And that is indicative, I think, of something deeper going on here. (laughs) What sleuths we are (laughs) deep into the Voodoo Ranger conspiracy. So here's the kicker. A planning commissioner that the Chronicle spoke to said, even if the theme park idea were real, it'd be very, very unlikely to be approved. Quote, the proposal would not be consistent with the general plan and would require a public vote under Measure P. And there has been no identified source for where the water would be coming Mm. from for an amusement park in the midst of a very serious drought. Wow. 
Manuela, what an amazing segue to our main topic of the day. Could not have planned it any better. So now on to the drought. Liam, you wrote about this a few weeks ago. Make sure to read, as always, Liam's story. So why don't you lay out the stakes for us? Okay, so as you may be aware, heat waves, record dryness, climate change are all converging here in California to create critically short water supplies. The Colorado River, a main water source, is shrinking. And Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, which is located along the Colorado River, is roughly one quarter full. A year's worth of normal rainfall has been missing in Northern California over the past three years. And in Southern California now, outdoor watering is limited to no more than twice a week. This all sounds very bad. Yes, and it is. But we're planning all this new housing. To remind everyone, Governor Newsom wanted 3.5 million new homes by 2025. That obviously didn't work. And while we're building at nowhere near that pace, there's pretty wide agreement that we'd need a lot more homes to make the state a broadly more affordable place to live. So more homes, more people, more water, right? If we're struggling right now with water cutbacks and drought and even more on the horizon, how can we possibly, or is it even responsible to do this? That's the question, yes. And when I started digging into this, I found some pretty startling facts that may provide some kind of counterintuitive answers. Okay, let's hear them. So let's start with some basic facts about how we use water in the state. Putting aside the water that flows through streams and things like that, 80% of California's water use is agricultural, while only 20% is for homes and businesses. This fact I sort of knew as a former Fresno resident. Ag is responsible for a lot of this. Right, and we'll be getting to more of that later, but also no need to cast dispersions on agriculture for the moment, though that sector, of course, will need to do some belt tightening like everyone else, no matter how much we love our very thirsty almonds. One of the top nuts. <laughs> it is. So you're saying we're only to blame for 20%, though? Yeah, so even of that 20%, 20%, that's the residential business use, right? Mm -hmm. Nearly half of that amount goes towards watering lawns and landscapes, washing cars or sidewalks, or filling pools and spas. So really very little of the state's water is used by people for their daily sustenance or even washing dishes and the like. Yeah, that's exactly right. And here's an even more startling fact. You know, in the past, the state's population grew in tandem with water use, and that's what we're talking about in the terms of this being common sense, right? More people, more water. Mm -hmm. But that changed starting in the 1960s here. Here's one of the stats that really blew my mind. Between 1967 and 2016, California's economy increased fivefold and the population doubled, yet water use rose by only 13%. Mm. And that's according to a new study by the Pacific Institute, which is a, a nonpartisan Bay Area think tank. Wow. And then in recent years, this shift has been even greater. So since 2007, both total and per capita water use in the state has declined substantially. Total urban water use in 2016 was at levels not seen since the early 1990s, that report found. Wow. And that's actually pretty good news in the face of a lot of bleakness. Right. And so one more L.A.-specific fun fact, Angelinos use 44% less water per person annually than they did four decades ago. Wow. So we're using a lot less water than we used to. How is that happening? Are you guys staying hydrated? <laughs> good, good question. Well, it turns out, you know, new development, for instance, almost always includes more water efficient faucets and toilets and appliances and showers in older homes. So that's a big deal. Also, renovations, you know, tend to incorporate those things as well. And then when you, you know, rip out lawns and replace them with native drought tolerant plants, cacti, that also saves 
a lot of water. So you're talking about a lot of things that have happened in the past, but the central question is the future. How are we going to accommodate more people, even if we're using less? Yeah. So fortunately or unfortunately, as the case may be, many experts say that we still have a tremendous amount of water waste in our systems. The same study that I've been mentioning before found that the state could further reduce use by more than 30% in cities and suburbs by investing in measures to use water more efficiently. So again, this means switching out your lawns for your cactuses, right? Upgrading leaky pipes and old appliances, and then things like recycling wastewater and capturing stormwater to replenish aquifers. Sounds expensive. Yeah, some of it is for sure. Like a new wastewater recycling plant so that we could drink that water, right? Would likely <laughs> be in the billions to build. But there's also the think about the cost of not doing that is continuing to rely on water supplies like the Colorado River that are offering diminishing returns no matter what we do. It's also important to think about the kind of development that we have, right? Yeah, so we've talked many times on the podcast about not only the push for more home building, but also the kind of home building and where those homes should go. You know, for climate change reasons, the state's environmental regulators have said repeatedly that we need to build more compactly in, and in already developed cities and entering suburbs to reduce the amount of driving that spews emissions. Right. Same goes for wildfires. Huge push not to build in more far-flung areas because those areas tend to be at greater risk for fires. And also the same goes for water. You know, denser development means less outdoor landscaping than single-family home subdivisions mm -hmm. and therefore less water use. It sounds like all those goals pretty much align. Yeah, they do. You know, but it's important to consider that in some ways this push on all fronts goes against the historical patterns of growth in the state where new subdivisions with lower land values mean bigger homes at lower cost. And, you know, that's not to mention the whole California dream idea of the single family home with the barbecue and the big yard there, too. Right. Way to kill our dreams, Liam. Yes. Well, I'm an expert in that, it seems. <laughs> okay. So before we get to more of these questions with Ellen, give us the bottom line. Is there enough water for lots of new people in California? So the short answer is yes, but assuming this 60-year trend of Californians using less water continues and accelerates into the future. So with that, let's get into our conversation with Ellen. We're here with Ellen Hannock. She is a vice president and director of the PPIC Water Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. Ellen, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. So to kick us off, I'll start off with an easy question. How bad is the trout? We're in year three of a bad drought. You know, usually the first year is not terrible because we've got water and storage. By year two, things can start to pinch, especially in places where their reservoirs didn't fill very well. Last year, our year two was especially bad in Northern California. This year three has hit Northern California hard again. And that's important for Southern California, too, because a lot of Southern California's water comes from Northern California. It's a real drought. So can you kind of expand more on kind of laying out our water use landscape for us? You know, maybe even get into a little bit of how Southern California relies on Northern California for water. You know, we also talked earlier about how much of our water goes to agriculture versus business and residential use. Can you elaborate on why that is as well? So let's start with maybe the geography of water in California, which is that about two thirds of the water that we get that arrives sort of in, with precipitation into the state is up in the northern third of the state. And then about two thirds of the use is in the southern two thirds or half of the state. And that includes both 
urban area, urban suburban areas, communities, but also agriculture. And so we move a lot of water around in California. We've got this very sophisticated, complex storage and conveyance system. California also does get a sizable amount of water from the Colorado River. That goes to farms down in very southern part of the state, as well as it's an important source for Southern California communities as well. So that's the geography. And then the sort of split between urban and ag. We are an agricultural powerhouse here in California, and that is because we don't get rain in the summer usually. So during the main growing season, it's sunny and you can kind of add water as needed. And that's ideal climate for growing high value fruits and nuts and vegetables. So that's been a real important part of California agriculture, but what it means is you need irrigation water. So most of what we grow in California is with a fair amount of irrigation water, and that results in this pretty high share of water used by people in the economy being in agriculture, about 80%, with the other 20% for sort of non-farm business as well as residents' communities. So there, can you break down further the residential and business use into regular use and actual building and infrastructure development? So within that 20%, you know, it's going to vary by community, sort of what share is for business and what share is for homes. That's because, you know, we've got some communities that are have more business activity and others that are more bedroom communities. But I want to say the breakdown might be about two-thirds, one-third, so about two-thirds for residences and then about a third for sort of the business uses. And of that residential amount, a lion's share, right, is for landscaping? Is that right? or On average, it's probably about half. Okay. And, that, and yeah. then it varies a lot by community. So San Francisco is a very densely packed residential you know, there's not a lot of landscaping, right? So I think outdoor water use might be about 10% in that community. And you've got places that have larger lots and also that are hotter that have a higher share of outdoor water use. So I've seen, and this has probably come down in, in the last five years, but you know, there were parts of sort of the Southern California kind of more desert community, like the Palm Springs area, some of those places, it was like 70, 80% outdoors. And that includes some outdoor recreational, you know, sort of tourism, like golf courses, right? So that's water that's going, you could think of that as a kind of crop in a way. How much of that would you say is like breaking down regular daily use versus new development? Is that possible to break down? You know, that's kind of the question of, are we adding water use as we add houses? Different communities, again, are growing at different rates in terms of new residences. California as a whole population has been pretty flat over the last couple of years and population growth has slowed a lot over the last decade or so. We're not growing as fast as the U.S. average anymore, which is why we lost a congressional seat in the last census, right? Then there were some very specific pandemic-related things that kind of really slowed things more recently, but we have a housing shortage. So even if we weren't adding people Right now, we should still be adding housing just because we've got a housing shortage and, you know, people are often doubling up more than would be ideal in, in existing housing. There's not a one-to-one -one equation really between adding houses and adding water use. And in fact, if you look at the trends in overall statewide, but also in a lot of the regions, we've been seeing 
overall urban, what we call urban, but like, you know, urban, suburban, non-farm use has been coming down, actually, even though population has been growing. And one of the most striking places to see that is in LA, where, and I can't remember the ratios on this now, but they've added lots of people and their water use is significantly lower. That's the equation of how much use is each person or each household using, and that's been coming down all across the state. Yeah, and that gets to sort of one of the most startling things I learned when writing the story that I did was, as you mentioned, this decoupling of population growth and water usage around the state. Like, how did that happen? You know, we don't have great data going way, way, way back to sort of the origins of this. So I don't know if there ever was like a one-to-one growth, but we really started looking carefully at demand management as part of thinking about urban water management in the late 70s and was provoked by a very short but very severe drought. And that was sort of when you saw the initial introduction of water-saving appliances in homes and rules about sort of regulations and standards that were starting to like look at water smart things. You know, similar kind of thing to what you've seen in energy, right? Where over time, we used to have light bulbs that were way less efficient and appliances that were way less efficient for energy. Same with water. So that really started in the late 70s. And then we had another major drought from 87 to 92, which again, really spurred a lot of additional kind of requirements on drought planning and on overall long-term urban water supply and demand planning. California has had a lot more requirements for long-term supply and demand planning than a lot of other places in the state. The early laws on that planning were from like the early 80s. That was, again, sort of after that late 70s drought. But over time, as we learn things, different requirements get added in. And I would say by the early 90s, you saw urban providers sort of routinely incorporating as part of their long-term supply planning, a category called long-term demand management, which was basically as part of thinking about your buckets of supply and how you're going to diversify, a piece of it was how much are you saving? How much supply don't you need? Additional supply don't you need because of long-term conservation? And building that into thinking, okay, so if we're going to add 100,000 people over the next 20 years, some of that, or in some cases, a lot of it can come out of just this long-term demand management. So that's like practically like just fixing leaky pipes or replacing leaky toilets with more efficient toilets or like practically what did that mean? Practically, a lot of it initially was indoor water use. And so it was retrofitting stuff. So toilets were a big one. We used to have really water guzzling toilets. The technology was like six gallons of flush. And you started seeing improvements in that. The early ones weren't great, but got better over time. And now you go to some places with modern plumbing and you know you hear a little right? Because it's like a vacuum thing. And it's very, it's actually very, very little water. So that's an example. In commercial uses, restaurants, sort of certain kinds of like efficient nozzles for washing dishes and things, low flow shower heads, a lot of sort of standard things, but also washing machines. There are new standards on those. They're very different from what they used to be in terms of water use. So all of that stuff indoors really made a dent. And then outdoors has been kind of the the next frontier on that. And that really, I would say, got going probably more in the last 15 years or so. And really big time with the last major drought, which was in the 
in the mid 2010s where there was a lot of emphasis on like turf replacement with more California friendly plants and, you know, sort of less thirsty things. Because one of the issues with outdoor water use is there are two things. One is what are the plants that you've got out there and how thirsty are they? And then the other is what's your irrigation system like? And that's why I was pausing when you were asking about like the trends. Ironically, there was a point when outdoor water use really went up because people went from manual systems to automatic systems. So the original generation of like automatic sprinkler systems actually increased water use because if it's just happening and you don't think about it, you're going to water sometimes when you don't need to, you're going to overwater, you know, whereas if you're going out there with the hose, then you're actually less likely to be overwatering. Because it's a pain. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's very hard to tell when you're overwatering. I'm mean, like, so grass, this turf grass, especially, it's very easy to overwater it and it just looks great. It'll have to get really soggy before you realize, oh, I overdid it. So the effort has been both to kind of get people to realize, you know, turf grass is like great in places where dogs and kids are playing, but you definitely don't need it in median strips. Like what's that about even, right? Or, you know, front lawns where it's ornamental, shift to something that also looks good and doesn't take as much water. So it's, you know, shifting those plantings, but then also along with that, the irrigation technology that is smarter. There are places that have sensors for If it's just rained, don't use it and stuff like that. Seems like it's gotten a lot better, but what would you attribute most of the waste to at the moment? I don't really like to use the term waste because unmanaged leaks are a waste, right? Or somebody just has a hose running down the street. That's a waste. It's more about efficiency usually. So where can we still tighten our belts? This is what you want to think with water conservation. Ideally, the things that we're talking about in terms of these shifts are things that are not a burden or a big sacrifice so much as just like a smarter way to get good outcomes. And there's a lot to be done outdoors for sure. You know, there's still retrofitting to happen indoors as well, but there's also habits with the indoor savings revolution that kind of happened was about technology and stuff where they don't have to think twice about. And that's why outdoor use has been a little harder. It's not just push a button. It's kind of You set these things up and they've got to be maintained. But there's also just like the mindset of, okay, yeah, I should really just not sing an opera in the shower. I should stick to a three minute pop song, right? Those kinds of things that are behavioral or, you know, like turning the water off when you're brushing your teeth and stuff like that, that there's technology for that in commercial places but not so much in homes, right? With sensors and things like that. Let's get down to some of like the practicalities then. I mean, I imagine from an efficiency standpoint, like me turning the water off when I brush my teeth is a lot less of a net sort of savings, if you will, than if Los Angeles, where I am, decides to build a giant new wastewater recycling plant and all of a sudden there's a ton of new available water that can be available for the whole region, right? So like, what are like the big ticket things that we sort of need to do to take care of some of the efficiencies that are still available to achieve? So to me, that's a different bin. If I think about the portfolio, there's like actual like saving water, reducing water use, demand management, and there's like long-term, you know, investment changes that will long-term change it. And then there's sort of behavioral things that can come and go. And during a drought, you want people to actually 
be tightening their belt more than they might need to in a non-drought. So saving the water from their shower, like, and lugging it out to their garden and stuff like that, that people do that during a drought. Maybe they don't need to do that all the time. And utilities plan for that. Utilities plan for during a drought, the strategy is partly to rely on your reliable sources, your less variable sources. So that's part of their supply portfolio. But then they also expect people to tighten their belts a bit more. But then in terms of like investments in new supplies, because to me, recycling water is a new supply. That's the way utilities will think about it too. There you look at, okay, what are the good plays for this community, this geography that we have, given what kind of sources we have access to and making investments that are, it's kind of like a financial portfolio. You kind of want to think about how do you manage the supply risk and how do you manage the cost? So there are some water sources that could be very reliable that are really expensive. And so you wouldn't want your whole portfolio to be that very reliable, really expensive stuff because you also want water to be affordable for people, right? So the way planners look at this is like, okay, what's my base supply? You know, where are my vulnerabilities and where do I have options to grow that supply? At what reliability, at what cost? Recycled water is now in Southern California, one of those go-to new supplies that people are, are really looking to. And that's partly because some technology improvement has happened, partly because there's been a lot of really good piloting. I, it's more than piloting now, it's but it's sort of a lot of good first mover experiences in getting people confident with that water as a source. After some rocky, I would say some rocky starts in some places, then there were people who lost elections over publicity about toilet to tap and, you know, sort of that, that can set you back a lot, right? And then Orange County really did some very fine work to kind of reach out to the community, all of the really important legwork with the community for this big recycling project, a partnership with the sanitation district and Orange County Water District to basically highly treat the water and then get it into the ground, which is where they store their water in their groundwater basin and then gets treated again when it comes out. You know, it's a huge project. And I think that kind of led everybody else to start feeling comfortable about doing that. So recycling is a big frontier in, in SoCal because a lot of that water would otherwise, it has to get treated anyway to a pretty high standard to be shipped out to the, you know, sent out to the ocean. And so why not reuse it? There are places where that's not as feasible. So I, where I live, I'm in the, in the East Bay, up in San Francisco Bay area, the wastewater treatment plants are on the bay. People are mostly, there's a little bit of flats, but people are mostly up on a hill and there's no groundwater basin to store it in. So you kind of would need to move toward a different kind of recycling where you can highly treat the water and then integrate it back into the water system directly. We're not at the point yet where we have regulations that allow that. And that's because the fail safe aspects of that have to be much tighter because of the much closer connection to getting it right back into the water system. So I think we'll get there, but now that's not a feasible technology for this community, right? So they have to look for other things. So how much do you think we're going to need to rely on things like wastewater recycling, perhaps more greater stormwater capture and cleaning and reintegrating that in the system to accommodate a larger population? If you look at the numbers statewide, it's not obvious that urban demand overall is going to be increasing. So you have communities that are growing. 
where their total demand could be increasing. You know, communities that are like parts of the Inland Empire in Southern California or parts of the Sacramento area, the Outer Bay area in San Francisco. Those are communities where they actually have to increase their supplies. But for a lot of places, it's much more about managing for resilience given the changing climate and increasing volatility in supplies, being ready for droughts where your base supplies that were more reliable before are not as reliable. So I think those new sources of what we sometimes call alternative water sources, those investments a lot of times are more about that than about expanding because our demand is growing. You know, the narrative about that is often wrong. People often talk about, oh, California's population is growing, therefore our demand is growing, therefore we need more water. It's really more about managing the shifting conditions. But I also want to talk about a world in which, as you've been talking about this more hypothetical, as if we were to build enough housing to meet the affordability demands or standards that we hope to have. You know, the governor's talked about millions of more homes. Assuming a world where that happens, right? I mean, how much do we need to rely on either these kind of new alternative sources of water or other things we would need to do to, to make sure that we could accommodate that? Okay, so th- to the extent that it's it's more about making people less crowded in their living conditions by having more housing, it's not necessarily going to increase their per capita use. So it's, it might just be shifting it from this crowded house to two houses that are less crowded. So it's going to vary with the community, whether they're going to need to expand supply, whether they can get it out of, you know, additional demand management or what combination of those things. And then the supply expansion, what the options are for them. So in SoCal, Definitely recycled water use. You know, we're already seeing it. That's an important news source. Stormwater capture is more complicated because that's often pretty nasty water, actually. When people talk about stormwater capture, it's not the same as like all water that comes in from storms in the state. When we talk about stormwater, we're usually talking about sort of water that's falling into urban areas during storms. And usually the first and foremost reason people are worried about that is cause some nuisance flooding, but also especially it can cause really nasty things to happen to local streams and creeks and the beach uh, in the case of you know coastal communities. So there's an imperative to manage that for water quality. And then again, at kind of at, like with recycled wastewater, people then look to, okay, instead of just making sure it doesn't mess things up in terms of messing up the water quality of our water bodies, are there opportunities to also capture and treat that and use it as water supply. As we talk about development, different kinds of housing, right, leads to different amounts of water use. Could you explain a little bit the difference between suburban subdivisions versus apartments, townhomes? So all new housing is more efficient indoors than old housing. And that's because the efficiency standards keep improving. So the Biggest driver, really, leaving aside behavior, like, you know, whether people take a long shower or a short shower or, you know, turn off the faucet when they brush their teeth. For the same activities, an old house is going to use more water than a new house, right? But then the big the big differentiation is what's going on outdoors. And so lot size is a factor. The bigger the lot you have, the more potential there is for more landscaping. San Francisco, there's no lots. So there's really not much potential to waste water outside. Then there is sort of climate. It takes a lot more water to keep the same landscape looking good 
in a hot inland desert area than it does on the coast where it's foggy every morning. That's just like the crop water need, if you think about it like that. And then the third thing is what you do on that lot. If it's all turf or is it nothing or is it California friendly planting? What kind of irrigation system you set up? So it's interesting to see sort of how, I'll say a couple things on this. One is, you know, most of our growth for some time now has been kind of in the warmer areas of the state. So just naturally, by virtue of that, the potential outdoor water use has gone up, but lots have also been getting smaller and footprints of housing, of the buildings have been getting bigger on those lots. So there's been a shrinking of the amount of irrigable area, let's say. So that kind of counterbalances that a little bit. And then there's this, you know, what are people's tastes and what approaches are going to take to outdoor landscaping? And that's where the shift in norms and shift in taste, accompanied by sort of technology and ease of access to the California friendly plants really comes in. And that's kind of the big hope with these turf buyback or, you know, turf replacement programs is it's not that they're expecting that they're going to pay everybody in the whole community to do that. It's more helping to sort of show people, look, this can look good. You start to see a change in taste around what people want. I guess besides precluding lawn space, which as you've explained, has a big footprint, are there any other efficiencies to be gained from more like multifamily type development than single family? I think you tend to see lower water use in multifamily homes, mainly because of the difference in outdoor footprint per household, right? So that discussion is really much more about all the other aspects of sustainability in communities. So if you're doing it in ways that are transit oriented, if you're doing it in ways that are bikeable and walkable and, you know, the transportation related energy, all of those kinds of things. One thing that people have been emphasizing sort of push toward proving outdoor water use efficiency and reducing outdoor water uses. It's still really important to have nice outdoor spaces, places for people to recreate and stuff. So that's been an important message of a lot of local water providers in this drought is like they water outside, but like this is what you have to do to keep your trees alive, right? Because we had some serious tree losses in some places in the last drought. And this is the question that keeps coming to our email inboxes and when we meet people around town and tell them that we're housing reporters and things like that. How is it possible that on the one hand, political leaders and experts uh, during this drought are telling us to do everything possible, like stop washing our clothes as frequently or even flushing the toilet less, right, to reduce water use, while many experts are saying there's actually enough water to increase the population by a, a decent or sizable amount as well? Like, how do those two things square? How much water savings is essential right now for making sure that the taps are gonna have water when you open them is not necessarily the same as general statewide messaging that you're hearing. This is because different communities have different vulnerabilities, but that's super hard to message at a general level. So sometimes it's simpler to sort of say, we all should tighten our belts right now. And there are very few communities that are like completely not facing some shortages compared to kind of non-drought times. So. I think some amount of awareness of let me see where I can 
tighten my belt, not waste water. That's a good thing. And that can translate over the longer term toward change behaviors that continue on after the particular drought emergency. So I don't want to say conservation is a bad thing. We're not in the same dire straits in every place. Last year, you know, just across the bay from me, Marin County was in terrible shape. They were in really dire straits. That's a a community that depends like 70% on a very local watersheds. They don't have a lot of overyear storage. So even one bad year can like mess you up royally, but they had two bad years in a row and they were really talking about putting a pipeline over a bridge from the East Bay to Marin this year had it not rained. They were going to do an emergency action, which they had done in 1977. So it's very local, very dependent place if they get in trouble. You had communities up in Sonoma, Mendocino, same kind of thing. Right now this year, you've got some communities in Southern California that are in a really tight spot because even though all of Southern California, the big metropolitan water district system has a lot of different sources, there are a few of these communities that are very reliant on one specific source, the state water project, which is getting very little water. And that is a problem that I am sure, I mean, I know that the planning is happening for investing to like connect them up so that five years from now, there will be infrastructure in place so that they are less reliant on that source. But in the meantime, rather than do like big emergency infrastructure investments, it makes sense for people to really cut way back on their outdoor water use, right? But that dire need is not the same everywhere. But I guess to this point, like kind of what you're saying is one thing to say, oh, okay, like right now, because there is a shortage or a threat of a shortage, or there could be a shortage in this particular neighborhood or area or whatever, yeah, maybe wash, do one less load of laundry a week, right? Versus well, if we're going to add another 100,000, another million, another 5 million people over a certain period of years, there's enough time to like build, hypothetically, right, like two wastewater recycling plants in Southern California, then boom, that might be a little bit costly, but then you've taken care of the demand that you have. The water you save today is not going to be around in 10 years. We're dealing with water, you're, it's like there's long-term aspects to it, and then there's sort of the in-the-moment things. There are definitely communities that are legitimately worried about adding a lot of new mouths to what's it? Thirst, not to quench. To Thirst, to Thirst to quench. Yes. You know, and, but those tend to be smaller communities that are isolated geographically and that just don't have a lot of options. So where are they going to go for different sources without it? Water's heavy. If you're moving at long distances, the infrastructure costs of doing that can be really expensive. So like the town of Cambria has been perennially in the news for that very reason. You know, it's a beautiful spot, central coast, just south of San Simeon. But, it, you know, you see the geography there and you understand, okay, yeah, I see why they have some challenges, right? They don't have, where else are they going to get their water from? You could move water anywhere with enough money, but then that's going to be water that is going to be so expensive that it's not going to be worth to, to do it. And that Cambria situation is not what, say, Burbank, uh, what it'd be doing. No, 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 no. And, you know, larger systems in general just have more flexibility to do all kinds of things, including, you know, water purchase agreements with agriculture. You know, that's an important part of the portfolio for some some communities. Do you also get this question, though, about 
housing and how is there enough water to build all of the housing? It seems, at least to us, like we have to feel it pretty often. And I'm just curious. It comes up to you get this question in agriculture, like why are we growing rice in a desert or whatever the, the particular crop of the people want to pick on it at the time. I think for folks who water is complicated. So I totally understand that folks aren't deep into it. You know, that's a natural question to ask. Right. But the answer is, is usually not what folks will expect. Do you think that in good faith that people ask, or do you think that some people sort of tack onto this as a way to say, we don't want new development? So I think if you as reporters wanted to get insights into that, I would look at, is water the only thing that people are raising? I mean, you know, now I'm not talking about just sort of a general public asking you a question, but like organized efforts around these things. If you're seeing people objecting to not just water issues, but also traffic, parking, add to the list. If you're seeing a lot of sort of multifaceted objections to new housing, then water is probably just a part of that package. And that's where I would think, hmm, okay, let me look at this a little more closely. I will say also that there are places where I've seen objections where groups will say, oh, you know, we can't have this because there's not enough water. But then the water provider will say, okay, here's these water sources that we're going to add to the pile. And they'll say, no, we object to those sources. And it's like, okay, you can't really have it both ways. Then it's really about not wanting growth. Just be clear. You know, if they want to object to growth because of quality of life in their community, to be clear that that's what it is and not excuses around around a resource where that's not the issue. All right. Uh Alan, anything else you want to add or emphasize from our conversation? I think that's that's good for me. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like our podcast, which I really, really hope that you do, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast services. This is important so that new people can discover us. Our editor, as always, uh, Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you for your great work. My name is Liam. I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you for listening. Thank you.